Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And today we're joined by Forrester analysts J.P. Gounder and James McQuivy to discuss the future work automation and its implications to the enterprise. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having me. So the future of work is also the story of automation. Automation is a big word. So before we get into the future work, what is automation? What are the piece parts of automation? So automation is a cycle of sensing and adapting. And that is to say, any kind of automation is going to gather information. It's going to analyze that information. It'll sequence out what needs to be done about it and execute on it. The first two are part of the sensing. The second two are part of the adapting. Now, all software at its base involves some kind of automation, right? It's taking some task and it's doing it by the machine. Um, Automation is therefore a very, very large area. And underneath automation, you'll find all kinds of software. You'll find actuators. You'll find physical robotics. You'll find AI. Um, All of these things come together to sense something about the world or the status of things and to do something about it. And I think underpinning that is this concept of between sense and act is now the ability to think or to be able to reason, which has typically been embedded in code. A human did it and embedded in code saying, if this is true, that that must happen. Now, part of that job is going to be done by the software itself because they're going to learn about what it means to sense different things. That's a key part of this? That is an absolutely key part of it. And you mentioned if this, then that. Traditionally, we think of all of software as being deterministic. So it does follow a set of if this, then that rules. When you start to introduce artificial intelligence, you move into a realm of probability. And guess what? Human beings aren't so good at thinking in terms of probability, but machines are. Um, And increasingly, as we add AI, that means maybe there's a 62% chance of something happening. Now, 62% chance could be great if you're making an investment. 62% chance you'll make money. But if it's a patient sitting in a bed and a physician is using that data, 62% isn't a good rate. So humans need to interface with this machine intelligence to determine the rules of engagement and what is appropriate. Yeah. And the way that I've, I've read the work is that for a period of time, there's been a level of AI embedded in our work. I mean, some level of intelligence. It's not as the software is free of intelligence. There's some level of intelligence, and that's increased with some things you're seeing in healthcare, others more on the interpretive side. But as we go forward two years from now, four years from now, with machine learning underpinning a lift, there's just going to be an increasing level of intelligence that gives freedom to robotics, gives freedom to decisioning that begins to emulate the displacement concern, which is now you're getting to what humans could do. Right. You know, and again, uh, AI itself, when we think about it at Forrester, we think about the ability to sense, think, act, and learn, and maybe combinations of that, again, in a way that's taking advantage of a wide array of different technologies, everything from machine learning and deep learning to computer vision to uh, sentiment analysis. I mean, we we have entire documents outlining all the technologies that go into here, but this new world in which AI suffuses everything starts to have real world impact. For example, Alibaba on Chinese Singles Day back in November, created 56 billion, with a B, 
customized shopping lists for their customers. You might say, well, why so many? It's because it's also a gift-giving holiday. And so here's a shopping list that might help your mom. Here's one for your sister. Here's one for your boss. And they, as a result of that and other efforts, they made over $31 billion in one day, which is bigger than Black Friday, um, uh, you know, in the United States. So part of this is that the way work evolved, the way companies evolved, that there's a whole bunch of work that got routinized. Not that the people didn't become less smart, is that the work was routinized in a fairly easy way for software to partake in that. We see that in RPA now, robotics process automation. But the argument is as intelligence gets to a certain level, there's more work that humans have typically been assigned to that begins to be something that can be done more efficiently, more effectively from a automation standpoint. That's underpinning. The question is what work goes where? Right. So over the last hundred years, we've asked people to act more and more like computers. That is to say, uh, we've put a lot of process around it. We've uh, specified business process, which is very algorithmic. It's a set of rules that we follow. And so some of that will get handed off to computers. The interesting thing is it won't just be sort of mundane tasks done by blue-collar workers or, or lower-level white-collar workers. It will also be single-domain knowledge tasks. I'll give you an example. While your general practitioner doctor isn't going anywhere because they have lots of variability and complexity in the diagnoses and work they do, the work of someone like a radiologist is much more at risk. And we find that right now AI is taking on the role of identifying tumors in sometimes in a better and more accurate way than humans. Coming at it from a different angle and maybe talking about the, the macroeconomy broadly, Uber taught us that it can be true that someone can come in and, and displace what was a proven model on a worldwide scale, cabs, and change the paradigm very quickly on a, on a very fast scale. Whether they did it well, there are some imperfections, all that stuff, but it proved that you could see a wholesale change out of how people perceive basically getting in a car and ride sharing. If I play that forward to the self-driving cars, you can see that that paradigm can be undone and automation can play a key role in changing the way the economy works, not just like a job at a time, but the macro pieces. Well, I would even argue it's not just that it can be undone. Much of it should be. I mean, the inefficiency of cabs to Uber, as an example, Uber and Lyft, um, that's actually created value that was meaningful um, and created opportunities for people involved in the economy that otherwise were held out of that opportunity because of cab medallions. Now, think about any other place where automation can play a role. There is an opportunity to say, let's take something that can only be done at level X and take it to 10X. We can do more of that thing. Now, if you believe that the thing you're doing for your customers is valuable to them and good for them and helps them in their lives, which I think most of our cust uh, customer-obsessed clients believe that, then we're actually creating more value. We're doing more for more people. So you can even argue that we should undo some of these traditional ways of approaching the economy. So the future of work actually goes with, if you look at our the way economy works, I'll take insurance as a standpoint. There's a lot of work that insurers as middle, middle people between the delivery and the financing, the whole bit. There's a lot of inefficiencies. It was necessary because the just system didn't work well. It was very manual in its onset. Automation goes in there and sees a, a, a workflow that is fundamentally different and better that drives value that can undo an industry. That's sort of the, that's sort of the mindset of future of work, that it, it can happen in a very large scale to an industry that sort of, that really was created 
out of the necessity of that moment. I, th I think that's true. I think we have to be a little bit careful, of course. There will still be a role for human beings in the insurance industry, right? Uh, they'll be strategic. They'll be creative. There's a lot of different jobs that can be done. That said, to your point, imagine that I get in a car accident. I pull my phone out. I take a photo of the damage and it, I upload it. Now, we can do that today. But the next step would be uh, an artificial intelligence uses computer vision to assess the likely claim and instantly approves it because it knows the math so well about what's likely that you actually get this great customer experience. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that all the rest of the jobs that are done at the insurance company are gone, but it does remove certain steps and make it more customer friendly. I do want to caution that some of our wonderful clients are using automation uh, purely for a cost-cutting kinds of uh, approach. And uh, that will not work as well, right? What you're looking for is the win-win. Maybe costs do go down, but your customer comes first. So in that example, is that a, that's a win-win situation? I would say that's a win-win. Yep. Customer gets the value. Company actually saves on efficiency, reduces error. That's another thing we're yep. concerned with here. It's not just being efficient, but reducing error that is often that often results from handing from machine to human to human to human. And we, mm -hmm. we just reduce those steps. We reduce the chance of error. All of that's goodness for the organization. But but I still come back to the point that if it then creates more value, happier mm -hmm. people, uh, un, undistracted by the hassles of their daily lives, we've done a, a moral good. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, I may be the only person on the planet today who's going to argue that automation and robotics and the future of work is a moral good. Um it doesn't have to be a moral good. We could choose to do it in all kinds of bad ways. But if we have our eye on the prize, which is serving the customer, then we will end up creating value because the technology allows us to. Is that a comment on scale? Is it more value to more people or just more value to a targeted set of people? You really have two levels to look at this. One, do what you already do better, more effectively, so that you can scale it up. But what we've seen is that the companies that take these kinds of innovations, especially if they're customer obsessed, meaning they're focused on how do we create more value for the customer, once they are freed up from some of the internal processes and tasks that currently weigh them down and create mistakes and errors and create all sorts of calls to the call center, they now can use their creativity, their innovation, their spare cycles of operations as well as budget to say, all right, what else mm -hmm. do we do? What other new value can we create? And that's the innovation that we're really looking forward to. So to go backwards, to go forwards and playing off that point, if you look at mobile phones, they were conceived for a certain reasons. But if you look at the far-reaching implications of that automation as it relates to developing areas and micro-lending, that changed the economic value that someone could realize in wherever part of the world you are because of the way that mobile phones could automate, deliver data, deliver those transactions. That that would be an example going forward of like true value is created from a form of automation. 100%. That is exactly right. We're creating a platform on which new innovations and experiences that no one can currently deliver or even think about delivering will be possible. And so you're going to need those humans who are capable of those intuitive and creative leaps in the organization to take what the robots and the automation processes have given them and say, aha, now I see an opportunity to do even more. But we must be careful as well. I mean, and I, I embrace everything James is saying as that's what we're trying to guide our clients toward. But let's think about some automation gone awry. Think about interactive voice response, IVR. Universally panned, still hated today. Uh, theoretically, you can throw a customer value proposition around it. You could say, well, you could call 24-7. 
But the reality is that the answers that you're getting and what you can actually do are very, very bad. Um, the, the error rate isn't necessarily lower because of the way it's been designed and deployed. And in fact, people are alienated further from your company because you haven't got an authentic form of engagement. Now, that's just an example to show that automation can be done for good or ill. And we must retain the customer obsession as a forefront of the strategy. Otherwise, I, I imagine when the next recession hits, you're going to see a lot of over-automation. You're going to see people cutting jobs, getting rid of uh, human capital that's valuable. But then what will turn out to happen is customers will suffer. So there's two sides of this coin, and they're not, you know, they're not usually exclusive of each other. There's the streamlining, make my existing business as it is substantially more efficient. And then there's automation that illuminates new possibilities, creates new value, that type of thing. But they actually are kind of related because automation itself is a skill. Like the idea that I can automate parts of the business, that skill of understanding what technology stack, what processes, how to do it. Even RPA from an efficiency standpoint can send, can build a skill set and processes for the later one, which is more value creation. Those, they're not mutually exclusive of each other. They might be at the beginning, but not at the end. Oh, absolutely. And right now we find uh, RPA um, skill sets both technical but also non-technical, people who know business process are in high demand. And I've talked to several clients, uh, end user organizations who've said, we'd love to hire people with RPA experience. We just can't find them. Well, you know, they're in great demand. We can't afford them. Um, I also want to point out that uh, the very same technology could be used for good or ill as well. Um, I'll give an example, and we'll see how this one turns out. McDonald's uh, is in the process of actually installing uh, self-ordering kiosks, which is a form of automation to help customers with serve, you know, making their orders up all across North America. By the end of 2020, every restaurant will have this technology. Now, if you ask McDonald's, they say this is customer obsessed. People can order more granularly if they don't want pickles. It's more accurate than someone typing in what you said. That could be true. But it's also a cost move and it's a labor move. And uh, there are certain segments like young millennials who are digital natives who probably love it. But if you're my 86-year-old dad and you're, you're faced with this you know, self-ordering system, it's a big negative. So when we think about the customer, it's not a unitary customer. It's, it's a group of different people. So following that logic, for good or for bad, for efficiency or for value creation, nonetheless, automation, its placement, the talent, all that stuff, that's, a, that's a, a capability firms will increasingly need to have. We have been in a climate over the last 12 months that said companies had too much technical debt, old systems, old processes, they had data debt. Do we move into a world where if you don't get underway with some automation, if you don't get the talent in-house, whether you own it or rent it, whatever way you get the talent in-house, that you're, there's another form of debt that will form, which is how to think about, deploy, manage the portfolio of automation within your enterprise. So I think there's a couple of dimensions, and, and James and I have been working together on some of this. The first element is actually not even the technology by itself, but it is what kind of a culture are you building among your workforce? Um, and we've been looking at this in several different ways. The first is uh, people that we hire, we want to make sure that they have kind of the baseline sense of adaptiveness. Um, I'm a flexible person. I'm used to change. I embrace change. I'm ready to, you know, embrace new technology. 
Because we have to remember um, AI, for example, because it's constantly learning, it may give you a different answer in two weeks than it gave you two weeks ago. So as, a, as an employee, I need to be prepared to deal with that. So there's some cultural underpinnings here. And then there's some skill sets that we need to develop because they are not necessarily hireable skills. Uh, they are the intersection between the technology and my own business process. I want to go back to what JP was saying about culture. Sometimes people will be a little puzzled when we talk about culture in this respect because they think, well, you know, culture always matters. Uh, you're just talking about a new technology. But, but the reason why we put culture, future of work, and automation together in this same conversation is because everybody's job is going to be influenced by automation. And so it is a culture-wide phenomenon. This is not just the mobile team. It's not just the social mobile team. It's every single job is either going to be changed by automation, we'll have to work with automation, we'll have to deal with decisions made by automation processes. So everyone, that, it has to be a culture-wide initiative. At a time where we already know that culture is the predominant driver of whether companies can be more customer-obsessed. That's what our customer obsession research has said for the last five years, solid. So culture is already hard. It's already a lever that's important to move. And now we're saying you're going to have to move it in the direction of being prepared for more automation. So they, we're putting a lot on the backs of executives, but I just don't see any other way around this. So breaking it down into some of the piece parts, you have the responsibility of leaders to frame out an automation strategy consistent with the purpose of the firm. And that purpose of the firm affects the way employees feel affiliation and engagement. You have people that will be actually prescribed work but through AI that will have to deal with the idea that's, that this entity, whatever this entity is, just gave me a job. And they just, to your point, that might move. It's not always the same job. You have the displacement consideration, which is you will have employees that will exit and that will have, you have to handle that culturally. There's a lot of cultural piece parts to this, different roles that people will play as automation takes hold. Yes, we could say, look at all of that and get a little overwhelmed by it. But it's also, much of it is measurable. We can measure whether or not your employees believe that you are articulating an automation plan that is consistent with the values of the organization and moving in the direction of serving the customer more effectively. We can measure that right now. And JP's uh, robotics quotient or RQ research does exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a measure of how well individuals, leaders, and organizations can adapt to, collaborate with, and drive business results from automation, AI, robotics, etc. In fact, we have just completed an update. It should be out to clients in about September, where we've looked at also some quantitative data on this. And what we found is we surveyed all these information workers with some attitudinal statements reflective of how ready they are for this. And in general, the scores were quite low, um, you know, under, under 30% on every measure that we looked at. And that is to say, people... Um, they neither have a mental model of how this is supposed to work, nor are they feeling like they are getting leadership and change management, nor are they feeling like they know what their own career path looks like. So, for example, 17% said, I agree that I know what my career path is clear to me in the world of automation. They have no idea. So there's much to be done. And in the meanwhile, of course, uh, the pace of change on the technology side is very fast. So organizations need to be on top of that as well. But the success or failure of your automation or AI project will not come from 
choosing the wrong technology, choosing the wrong vendor. It will come because you have an, you know, an insufficient cultural skills, you have the wrong people, your leaders are not adapting, and you don't have the org structure to back all that up. Do we have data, or maybe James, this is to your future fit work, like how ready are leaders to take the helm and ensure that their workers are therefore ready? Like- so we're measuring leaders on a couple of levels. We are measuring their individual future fitness, and future fitness is a separate metric we won't go deep into, but it essentially measures nine characteristics of whether someone looks at the future and says, I bet I can figure that out, mm-hmm. versus someone who says, oh boy, I don't even know where to start. Executives are twice as likely to be in the high category of future fitness, so that's good. And you would think that that they would be in that level because they looked at the they looked at the C suite and they said, "I bet I could figure that out." And sure enough, they have. Um, still, however, thirty percent of them are in the low ranking category of what we what we describe as future fitness. So it's probably the case that there are pockets of executives who themselves, just from their pure orientation toward the future, and we've heard this when we meet privately with with executives where some will even say candidly, you know, I'm two years from retirement. I'm not the person who's going to solve this problem right now. And I I get that on the one level, but on the other level, uh, two years is a long time to let your company sit back and not make progress on these kinds of issues. So we're measuring them as individuals. Obviously, though, we're also measuring their beliefs about their robotics quotient as an organization and just their overall approach to their employees. One of the things that becomes really, really clear in this nexus of, okay, we got to serve the customer and we have to use automation appropriately. Well, your employees are the thing that makes that happen, that bridges the automation and the customer. Well, if the employee, um, if your approach to employee experience is insufficient in general, independent of technology, independent of of automation, you, you don't have a fighting chance at this one. So, you know, the companies that we've measured where the executives are are fit for the future, where the robotics quotient is high, and where the uh, the employee experience scores, you know, above average, even just above the top fifty percent. If you have all three of those things, it's amazing what those companies are accomplishing. So, as you guys talk, I think of the organization of future, and there's sort of this irony that appears in my head. If you look at marketing shops as an example, one of the funny things about the first wave of technology, it sort of took out the value of creativity whether that was intentional or unintentional, off you went. And then you look at, so one of the implied value props of automation is it frees up people to think more strategically and more creatively. So we're not talking about a world where everything is simply more efficient. We're talking about a world where things can be far more creative, variant, because creativity can create many different roads. Oh, it's, it's a huge uh, opportunity, and it's interesting. Um, I spoke with a company, for example, once that said they were having trouble getting their chat bot to work because people didn't quite understand it. It wasn't very natural. So they went to the local MFA program, and they hired professional novelists to come and write dialogue because they knew how to do that, and it actually yielded a better outcome, right? So uh, sometimes it's true creatives like novelists and artists. In other cases, it's simply having the mental space to actually think creative about your business and your problems. So it doesn't have to be with a paintbrush. It could just be, we're going to rethink our entire business proposition. And this is where we get into adaptiveness because customer needs are changing more rapidly than ever. Um, And sometimes they get forced. Imagine there's a recession. Customers suddenly don't want to spend as much money. They may still want to work with your company, but they have a different set of needs. And your company needs to be creative in the way that it adapts 
to those changing landscapes and the value proposition of what it's giving customers. Different than being agile. It is. You could be agile and move in the wrong direction. Whereas adaptiveness, as we've defined it, and colleagues like Bobby Cameron and Brian Hopkins have written about this, I have written about this, it is in fact the uh, ability to fundamentally reconfigure your relationship to the customer, to the market, using technology to actually deliver. It's skating to where the, the puck is going to be, not where it has been, to quote Wayne Gretzky. So James, you said that there are decisions that need to be made now that have far-term implications to automation. Automation is this slow but increasingly pace of moving technology into my business in a different way to get a different outcome. How do I think of the timing and, and sequencing of this over time? You know, because I'm more of a psychologist than I am a technologist, I really am concerned with people who break it down into phases, but think of it as technology phases. Invest in this technology, then that technology, and then that technology. So you love my question. Well, <laughs> I, I, I will just say that you can invest in the technology all day long. But if your people, as JP was just sharing some of the data, are saying they have no idea where they're going to fit in that space, mm. your investment will, will come to naught. So there needs to be some sort of pairing of investment and sharing the learnings and the challenges with the organization and show that you're culturally learning together. So whatever those technology steps are, there need to be it needs to be a plan on the culture side. I mean, let's let's just admit we've seen this with everything we've studied in the yep. two decades yep. I've been here where the executives say, "Oh, okay, I have an iPad. I guess we understand the internet now." This is one of those things where you can't just say from the top I've been to a conference where they talked about AI. I've got it all figured out. You do have to actively discuss this with your employees and make sure they feel as ready about it as you do. So in that lens, if there were such a thing as an automation program office that sort of said automation is going to be a meaningful impact to our business and so big, so multifaceted that I'm actually going to centralize its point of origin in a program office in the same way you do M&A or large transformations. What would be some of the componentry in that program office? So I think it's going to be multifaceted. Think of it as a center of excellence. Now, what's interesting is this center of excellence is no longer just a kind of IT group of people. It has to have capabilities of diplomacy, of bridge building, of working with HR, working with change management, learning development, other functions. Um, and that group is also going to have to not be too determinative in the way that they think about automation. Every business unit is going to have its own unique spin on its needs. And so maybe a third of the responsibility sits in the center of excellence. Maybe two-thirds sits out in the business units where the business is happening. So what's interesting is we also need to build a culture not only among kind of the technologists, but definitely across a wide swath of people in the organization and within the business leadership so that they start thinking automation plus human is the future of my business unit. Right. So I'll, I'll choose one group. I'll just choose marketing. So marketing would be there because if you look at marketing automation platforms, they came in. They made many good changes, but one thing they did is they put scale to email. I could do one thing and do it a million times. And so they've inflicted wounds in the marketplace and spam became a normal thing. So as I automate for good, going back to your point, James, I'm going to bring the marketing from an engagement standpoint brand in there because I need to understand what's the true brand resonance of the things I'm choosing to do. Well, this is where we start to get into how the need for automation creates the need for even more data and even more automation because 
sure, we can automate the delivery of the email, but we now need to do analysis on how well it was received and not just whether they opened it or not. That's what we've been measuring for the last decade or more. We now need to understand, as you said, what was the effect on the brand? What was the effect on the way people felt about uh, interacting with us as a company? Um, we, for example, are working with a company right now that invested a tremendous amount of money in understanding uh, what their brand should mean. And um, it's a retail company. And, and in the process, found out that everything that people told them on the surveys that they wanted, when they tried them in the market, it didn't yield any more click-throughs, any more buys, any bigger shopping carts, or any of those things. And so now they're left with this essentially human decision problem of, sure, we could automate around this information that we've decided is strategically important, and we could spend all this time and money and get no reward from it at all. So marketing, as an example of a, of a department that's going to have to say, we can't just automate one thing. We're going to have to add, automate it all, including the insights collection, including the measurement. It's going to have to be automated from beginning to end, which is one of the reasons, and, and my colleague Jay Pattisall, who you mentioned before, is talking about the role of the CMO in the future of automation and the future of uh, where customer experience goes from here is as someone who is trying to care about the customer across the entire life cycle at every possible touch point, and you're going to need automated data collection and even automated creation of messages and delivery of messages in order to do that well. And in the context of future of work, the marketing shop as we knew it and know it will evolve it, or it will make some, it will be some significant changes to the way marketing shops are organized, who's in them, what they do. Who's in them and what they do for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, nicely to the point that we mentioned before about creativity, it suggests that there will be an incredible role for the creatives there to provide the inputs that the AI will then go test mm. and come back and said, yeah, you had it, you hit it on the head. This is exactly the great creative or no, it's not. Or maybe in this channel, yes. And in that channel, no. I've been speaking to a lot of vendors lately who are doing exactly that with AI dependent on the power of the creative that was given to them. So there's still some people in there doing that, but there's a whole lot of other people who are managing dashboards and managing the, the coefficients placed in front of different systems to see, do more of this or do less of that based on what the AI told us. Yeah, your creatives will have to be very high RQ. They will have to learn to work side by side with intelligent systems. The other thing I want to say about this is that not all automation is created equally. So, yes, automating email campaigns led to a spam problem. But as we move into higher levels of intelligence, you have offerings in the market like Persado who can look at um, a copy and say, what words individually in here are more likely to resonate with the customer? Now, this isn't just good for the company using Persado. It's good for the customer because the customer is getting the words that they will understand and that will either res you know, activate them or not. Um, so we have to think of this not only as a march toward more automation, but better automation. Going back to the concept of the program office, and you touched on it, James, CX. And it just strikes me that CX without the concept of automation is not terribly a risk reward game. It's, you know, basically we'll make improvements, we'll make it better on a constant basis. And hopefully that has some impact on financials going forward. It's much more of a risk reward game because I'm going to use automation in ways to sense things going back to your model, JP, recogni facial recognition, other things, profiling that you know, sometimes is a very negative tinge to it. Are people ready to handle the risk-reward structures that automation is going to bring to that program office? Because people are going to take chances that they may not know what chances they're about to go take. 
So Michelle Getz, our colleague, and I are writing a report on AI governance. And governance is a broad field that includes everything from explainability to ethics to privacy to the organizational structures to measurement. Um, And what we've learned initially is that, look, very few organizations are doing AI governance very effectively. So there aren't necessarily um, very good structures in place to deal with these problems. For example, you mentioned facial recognition. I mean, this is a privacy minefield. And so we're going to want to take that on with a lot of thoughtfulness and understanding exactly what's possible. So I think at this point, I would be a little bit um, careful if I were one of my clients' shoes. I would say um, I would be doing some proof of concepts, but I would be running them by a group of people who are ethicists to make sure that um, these are good experiments to be doing. There's a really, as we do our scenario imagining down the road of what brands might mean in a world of infinite personalization, because that's where this leads us, is we see, is there going to be a cluster of customers who are going to see positive value in not having a personalized experience? And there will be. And so as, as a brand, you may choose to have separate sub-brands or pieces of your experience that are designed just for them. And they don't get this hyper-personalized experience because they don't want it. But there is already today, I can point them to you in our data, uh, a group of people who want it and want it badly. And yes, I'm in that group. So I know these people really well um, who are saying, yes, recognize my face, recognize my voice. I want to be able to have at any moment's notice a tally of who's in what room in my house and how long they've been there, what their body temperature is. I mean, I'm getting a little bit ridiculous, but the point is I expect the companies that I already trust should use that data to serve me at a much higher level than they have before. So what? yes, I definitely agree we need to make sure there's governance and and an ethics-based approach to this. But let at least some of your customers express that they want something, even if it means you have to do it carefully and say, look, we're not sure how this is going to work out. If this is what you want, we're going to test this with you. Um, But it would be it would be impossible to construct an effective single governance policy that every company should swear by for these kinds of issues. Uh, Because we just don't know enough yet. We haven't seen where the technology goes, but we also know that customers will vary in what they want. So automation in the future work is already out there. So much is written about it, very hypey. And yet today leaders need to take on some jobs and tasks they haven't taken on before to put in motion automation future work strategies that are more thoughtful than simply technology. We're going to return back to other implications that are societal, economic, number of jobs, that type of thing. But we we wanted to start the process here by saying, what do leaders do today to prepare themselves and their firms for quite a journey going forward? Well, I think um, one of the things we've learned from the RQ research is that leaders need to have at least four characteristics. They need to have a vision for what they're trying to accomplish. This is strikingly missing or there's no ability to coalesce around a single vision. That also implies they need to have influence um, among other leaders within the organization, right, to get these things engineered. Um, They need to have the ability to think about this in terms of employee experience, right? They need to link this to broader goals within the organization. They need to be able to link this to uh, things like uh, culture, which we've talked about a good bit on this uh, podcast, And, and they need to be able to think a little bit differently about the role automation will play in reconfiguring the company and its purpose as market conditions change. I'll just say that 
even though it sounds like we're talking about something that's all new, if you go back and listen to everything we've just said, you're going to hear a lot of things we already knew and just sometimes haven't done well. Stay focused on the customer. That term customer obsession really, really becomes important at this case. This is not new, but it does it does become more actionable, actually, thanks to automation, uh, but also more of a requirement because otherwise your automation could go astray. Also, employee experience. I don't think there's anyone who believes that employee experience is unimportant. But now we're seeing that it sits right in the middle of this particular issue. So we're going to have to focus on that. Again, not new, but perhaps we are shining a new light on it. The technology itself is new, and that's going to continue changing. But the environment in which the technology influences employees to serve customers, that's a process you can begin today, even as you leave some open spaces for the technology to change. So we'll come back and visit with you guys again as we explore this big world ahead. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.